Well, my friends, we are in for a very different kind of Appalachian Anglican this week. My apologies for missing last week. I was actually fighting the uh, COVID virus, and thankfully, I'm doing much well, much better now than I was. So I appreciate your prayers when you heard the guys joking about me having another podcast. <laughs> uh, no, that's not the case. Uh, but this week, it's just going to be me. The the other gentlemen who are typically with us have a whole slew of things that are going on. I blame it on the summer schedule, so I don't know how consistently we'll get new episodes out throughout the summer for you. We do plan on taking a break uh, in July and portions of August, and we'll pick back up um, later this summer. So that I give you time to catch up on the episodes that you've missed. But this coming Sunday is Pentecost. So it seemed appropriate that I would answer some of the questions that we had come in in the past couple weeks and then do just a, I won't say a short explanation on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but something that I think that's very, very important about the Holy Spirit as it relates to the last two episodes we released about Nuda Scriptura, or what is often called Sola Scriptura, but really isn't. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. So it's going to be me today. I hope that you don't get too bored and fall asleep, because uh, I you know, am not going to have the kind of jokes some of the other guys do, but I think it'll be a good time, and feel free to take a listen to this and, and pass it along to your friends. So, without any bumper music, here we go. We've got uh, two questions that came in a couple weeks ago, and here is the first one. Um, our, our listener would like to know why the historic churches do not have the prohibition on alcohol consumption like many American evangelical, especially traditional Pentecostal and independent charismatic churches do. Where did that come from? Well, that's a pretty easy answer that is often just simply not known um, because it's not part of ancient church history. It's something that only goes back to the 1800s. So for those who, who say, well, I, I've never known that, well, do a little bit of history on the temperance movement and the events that led up to prohibition and even the, the time when alcohol was, you know, it was illegal to, to, to sell alcohol in the United States. You know, we still have certain counties in the nation that are called dry counties where you cannot buy alcohol as a carryover from the you know prohibition period. Where did that come from? Well, that comes out of the 1800s predominantly because there were such rampant levels of public drunkenness that the women's temperance movement as a, an outgrowth of the, the Second Great Awakening and the rise of an American evangelicalism rooted in revivalism and other kinds of, I don't want to call it Puritan, but Puritan-esque things um, really shied away and taught against alcohol altogether. Now, I don't like using the word Puritan because the pilgrims, you know, the, the coming over on the Mayflower, would outdrink anybody today. The amount of beer that they consumed was large, large, large amounts uh, compared to, to today. You know, if you were to 
uh, find a, a pilgrim, you know, somebody dressed like the pilgrim, put them in a time machine, the first place they're probably going to go to get something to drink is the beer cooler at Sheets or wherever it is you go get gas and they've got that special room that's specially cold with where the alcohol is. That's where you're going to find your Mayflower people getting something to drink. Now, people find that very um, acoustic almost, like it's a violence to their conscience because for so much of American contemporary American practice, alcohol consumption has been considered a sin. But up until the 1800s, drinking alcohol was not a sin in any way whatsoever. Drunkenness was, but drinking was not. And it's something that, that is particularly American that really develops in the latter part of the 1800s. So I would just recommend going back and doing some research, and you can get some more details on that. Um, and you can also, as a, as a happy note of history, if you want to look at it that way, you can look at the rise of Welch's grape juice and, and the way that Welch's grape juice replaced wine for communion in those same church circles. So I, I would recommend you check that out, okay? Um, now, of course, as Pentecostalism and different kinds of revivalism have gone around the world from the United States, that prohibition against alcohol has become um, very international especially in, in those, those mission, missionary places where those missionaries were, quote, successful. You know, they had large numbers of converts. Um, you see that in places like Uganda and other portions of East Africa, uh, some, some places in South America, but not many. Um, so the historic churches, it, it was never a sin, and so they never deemed it to be a sin to drink, and they still don't. So I think that, that answers that question uh, briefly, and hopefully there's something to go back and look up with the temperance movement and uh, the evangelical world as it was understood after the Second Great Awakening in the second part, the latter part of the 1800s. Okay, uh, let's see here. Second question. Um, how does a new believer develop strong doctrine? How do you become doctrinally strong? You know, well, I, I think this is an important point that we talk about in our our episodes, you know, almost weekly, about how in the early church, you know, you were looking at up to three years, three years of preparation to be baptized. You, you had to, they took three years teaching you and you demonstrating that you were going to live a life in conformity with the gospel with the little bit that you were given. You had to demonstrate you were sincere in your repentance before they bring you to baptism. And oftentimes, as I mentioned, that was three years in length. We have abdicated that, called it religion, and gone for something that basically says we're saved by confession alone instead of being saved by faith alone. And so we say we're saved by confession, or even let alone um, a, a worse effect is not confession, but we're saved by intent. I want to be a Christian, or I want to be saved, because God has a good plan for my life, so I choose to believe that. And that's it. There's no repentance, or uh, repentance is, is turning away from uh, what is considered godliness, or in the words of Paul's letter to Timothy, religious duty and godly expectation. You know, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord has to turn from wickedness. Well, if your preparation to become a Christian was lengthy and was thorough in the way that it dealt with your idolatrous background 
your pagan philosophies and your ideas, your immoral practices and behaviors and thought patterns, if all of those things were being addressed in your preparation to become a Christian, and remember, you wouldn't be in that process if you weren't already making some kind of profession of faith um, that Jesus was Lord. Because in that three-year period, you know, you had the, the pre-inquiry, you know, the person who was kind of interested who wanted to come to a service. You go from pre, pre-inquiry to formal inquirers, people who really wanted to know the Christian distinctive and then after that person had demonstrated sincerity as an inquirer, they would have the people who were their friends, their contact points in the church, who would basically be their sponsors or what come to be called godparents when those people were enrolled in specific classes to be catechumens, meaning they were going to be specifically prepared to live as a Christian and to be baptized, and then after baptism to receive the Eucharist. That is the early Christian practice, and that as Christendom rises and becomes the default belief system for the majority of people, well, that practice is gone because people are already making professions of faith. They're being raised in the church instead of coming into the church as an adult. And we are in a post-Christian context. We're, we're on the other side of that. So we Bibles are everywhere. The Lord's Prayer is printed and pasted everywhere. The Ten Commandments legally you know there's fights but they're in some courthouses not others they're still in dc you know put pictures of the ten commandments and the listings of them and all and the apostles creed all over the place so christian doctrine is everywhere but it's almost treated like a an unholy relic that if you hold to it you're not holding to actual doctrine you know so that kind of gets into answering the question is if, you, if your process of becoming a Christian, one, was an actual process, and two, had actual content, then you have a much more profound assurance that you're coming to Jesus, genuinely, as opposed to today, you've made a confession of faith in a Jesus you don't know. You know nothing about him other than that he has a good plan for your life. Well, that's not even, I mean, is, is Stephen telling that to the people who are stoning him in the book of Acts? Hey, call upon Jesus and be saved because he's got a good plan for your life, right? That's just not how the gospel is presented in scripture and then the bulk of uh, tradition. It's a very American idea that I'm going to get saved so I can get something because salvation isn't enough. I need a promotion in my job or I need the, 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 the euphoria in my mind that are that is equivalent to someone being addicted to drugs you know and this stuff gets thrown around today as if it's the actual means of conversion and and the and the purpose for converting to Christ and they're not so i think one of the ways to really start to help people who have come to the lord they've made some profession of faith and whatever the way that happened for them you know they've been in the church 5 years 10 years 20 years and they've never really begun to be properly discipled, the first thing to do is to find someone who not only knows Scripture, because this is where it gets a little bit more dangerous, okay? A lot of Christians who are in churches for a long time are able to quote Bible verses, but that's about the extent of it. And so you, they end up doing something called proof texting, meaning they'll have three or four verses to kind of cite as a reference to why they do or do not do 
something or believe something or not believe something. But biblical interpretation is much more than that. It's not proof texting. It's a, a it's conscientious effort to understand the biblical world and the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation, comprehensively teaching on, on all that it says and the integration of that huge meta-narrative, that, that massive story of redemption into our particular, particular lives. You've got to do that in community. So you, I would find people, not just a person, but people who demonstrate that they know the Lord and that they have a theological disposition. And you, there's tons of resources online now that you can find and begin the process of working through it. And I would start with simple things as well. Okay? So, for example, the, the Anglican Church in North America released a couple years ago a catechism that's it's, it's not very long. I mean, you can work through it, read through it pretty quickly, but it's a treasure trove of explaining the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed, which is what, what was required for baptism in the early church. You can get it as a PDF. You can get it as, as a book you, it's, you know, and read through it, and it's built or written, I should say, as catechisms in the past. So it's a question-answer format with all the scripture citations and other references if they're quoting from something else in the answers. And I would start with something like that, and I'd really begin working through it, and you will find solid biblical and theological answers to questions that you may not even know you're supposed to be asking, all based in very essential, fundamental, uh, not fundamentalism, but fundamental understandings of the Christian faith. So I would start there, and I think that's a, a good place to, to move through and move forward. And as always, you know, if anybody has more questions about, about these two things, you know, let us know, and, and we can give you more information. I did recommend to the person who sent in the question getting a copy of uh, some of the material that has been recently put out by, um, I know Thomas Oden was the general editor, but I can't think of the publishing company. It was probably Zondervan. But they put out a series of books that is were based upon explaining the Nicene Creed with quotations from the church fathers. So as the fathers were explaining and teaching the creeds to the people in the early church, we have this compilation of texts there. And I believe a, the particular volume I recommended was called This We Believe. And it was an explanation of the third article of the creed, you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's a good place to start because the Holy Spirit's the one that's building the church. You know, he's the one working in the world today while our Lord reigns from heaven. Uh, the Spirit is here at work building the church. Um, faithfulness, instilling faithfulness and stalwart devotion in us to that eyewitness testimony that we have in the Gospels. So there's a, there's a good indicator, a, a good um, litmus test, if you will. How do you know that you're really being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you devoted to the Word of God? And are you devoted to the sacramental life of the church? Those are very, very important questions. They're very integral and they're essential basic insights and formation principles for us. So having said that, let's jump into how we understand the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well if the guys were here with me, I would ask them this question. And so I'll ask it to you and I'll give a pause, not a long one, but a pause. So here's my question that, that we would lead with and it's this. 
why do so many Christians pray to the Holy Spirit specifically when there is no place in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is specifically prayed to? Now remember, if you were sticking with the whole sola scriptura and the bad understanding of that, that's really not sola scriptura, but as people say, I don't believe that is true because it's not in the Bible, or I won't practice that because it's not in the Bible. Well, let me tell you categorically that when the church was debating the Arian controversies in the middle of the 300s about the divinity of Jesus, the very next topic that they began to debate, and it was a group of, of people in Macedonia called the uh, Macedonians or the Pneumatomokians, the spirit fighters, they began to say that the Holy Spirit is not God because there is no statement from Genesis to Revelation where there that says clearly the Holy Spirit is God. Now, the scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit is God, but it doesn't make a statement like that. And so the Cappadocian fathers, the two Gregories and Basil, um, they write about this, as, as do many others. And Basil the Great, his work on the Holy Spirit is monumental and instrumental in understanding how the church articulated the divinity of the Holy Spirit since... The Bible does not say in a way that satisfied the, the spirit fighters that the Holy Spirit is God. So how does Basil do this? And this is part of how we answer this question because there are Christians today, very famous ones, very important Bible teachers, who have noticed from Genesis to Revelation, no one talks to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since that's not in Scripture, no one today should talk to the Holy Spirit. And they say the Bible teaches that we should not talk to the Holy Spirit. We should only talk to God the Father and on occasion to the Lord Jesus. If you don't believe me, look it up. Just get on Google or any search engine and ask the question, should we pray to the Holy Spirit? And you will find the articles that are very thought, well thought out, they're very reasonable, and they're consistent in their application of how they understand sola scriptura. Even though they're not really engaged in sola scriptura, it's much more solo or nuda scriptura. So let's go back to Basil for a second. Basil takes a couple different approaches to argue for the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The first is he starts to make use of the prepositions in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. What is a preposition? Think about that in English, right? Now, in Greek and in Hebrew, there are prepositions, just like we have them in English, the words like and, in, by, with, for, in. Did I mention that one? Of. There's a number of words that are English prepositions, and they, they show us how nouns and other items, you know, pro, nouns, pronouns, etc. I don't want to get too grammatical for you since I can't draw it so you can see it, but prepositions show us how 
say ideas and nouns relate to each other to keep it brief okay so basil goes and he says when the bible says the spirit is the spirit of jesus well to be of jesus or of god because both phrases are in the bible is not the same as being from because angels can be from god or from jesus but to be of is to participate in the divine nature, right? In that sense, in the spirit, because the spirit, as opposed to saying like a man of God, whereas the, 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 the statement is not to say that the man is of the essence or nature of God um, in, in an ontological way, but that he has a particular, particular relationship to God. We're talking about the spirit of Jesus Basil will go on to argue that those kinds of prepositions indicate that the Spirit is indeed divine. Now he realizes that the prepositional arguments themselves are not entirely enough, even though they should be. He goes on and he builds upon this and he says liturgically, why in the Gospel would our Lord say to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit unless the Holy Spirit himself was as divine as the Father and the Son. Now, we may take it for granted when we look at that and we can see that, that, that point and say, yeah, that's clear that the Holy Spirit is God. Look at that in Scripture. Well, it wasn't clear in the 300s, and so it took Basil and the others like him to argue against the heretics, the Holy Spirit is divine. So he argues from liturgical practice. So he appeals to baptism and the words of institution for baptism in the New Testament. And then he starts talking about the liturgical practices that were part of the worship experience of the people that we do not have outlined for us directly in the text of Scripture, but was part of the worship experience that they had, in the words of Basil, from the fathers. So even though he is one of the great church fathers, he in his own writings is referring to the fathers that were before him back to the era of the New Testament. And so Basil appeals to the prepositions in the scripture. He appeals to liturgical practices. And he says, these things teach us that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, it's after this point in history that the church begins to directly address the Holy Spirit in prayer. The church is directly addressing the Holy Spirit in prayer because he is divine. We don't really have any records in Christian history before this that they were specifically invoking the Holy Spirit in the sense of directly praying to Him. As a matter of fact, even in our prayer books, the majority of our prayers are addressed directly to God the Father through Jesus Christ in or by the Holy Spirit. And there's variations on the prepositions there. There are some prayers that are directly to the Lord Jesus, and there are a few prayers directly to the Holy Spirit. But we point this, we bring it up to, to relate this point of how do we understand sola scriptura in relationship to the Holy Spirit? And to all of our dearly beloved Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters who call out to the Holy Spirit, but then will deny things like Lent, or they'll deny that the church should be under the, the succession of bishops through history. 
or they'll deny that there is a Christian priesthood, or they'll deny that there is a liturgy and a form that should be observed in worship because the Bible doesn't tell them that. It's, a, it's an oversight so that even though there's great sincerity, this sincerity isn't based in actual fact when it comes to understanding sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is the word of God and we settle our disputes with it and by it, but we only understand it as it's taught to us at the feet of the fathers. That's a very important distinction because it's the fathers who are teaching us, as I've already mentioned, like Basil, that the Holy Spirit is indeed God. The Pneuma Tomokians, the spirit fighters, are not right. The Holy Spirit does the miracles, the works of Jesus in the midst of the church. Basil will talk about miracles as well. The Spirit is the one at work. He is. And we can rightfully call to him. We can say, Veni, Creator Spiritus, or Veni, come, Creator Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, and fill our hearts with fresh fire and inflame our souls with zeal and love for the Lord. We can directly call upon him. But if you go with a new descriptura reading of the text, you can't. Because there's no precedent for it in Scripture. And there's no precedent for it until after the Council of Nicaea, until the latter portion of the 300s. So as we are approaching now the day of Pentecost, we approach with faith that the Holy Spirit whom the Lord sent 50 days after Easter, 10 days after his ascension, he is indeed still with the church. The Holy Spirit never left. This is a very important thing for people to remember, Christians to remember. The Holy Spirit never left the church. He's always been working reform and renewal and revival. He's always been bringing the gospel with power and clarity that brings conviction so that people can be converted. He's the one working through baptism, regenerating and connecting us with Jesus. He's the one who at the prayers of the priest and the people of God is descending upon the elements of bread and wine to make them for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ and then to nourish us with the very body and blood of Jesus that we might continue in that holy fellowship with God, receiving Christ's body and blood to become his body. As the Holy Spirit's doing all of this. Too often, the ministry of the Holy Spirit gets relegated to particular charisms. And this is dangerous because he is God and he is God in the midst of the church. He's God who's quickening us in worship and prayer and is effectually working in us what Jesus accomplished for us so that it's the work of God that's moving us and directing us and not the power of our faith because even our faith itself is the gift and the flame of the presence of the Holy Spirit that he gives us by his will and by his good grace that he nourishes, quickens, and inspires by the word that he breathed or was breathed through the mouths and the pens of the writers of Scripture. And that's a beautiful sentiment for us to cling to, to both hold to and be held by, 
as we move into a season of Pentecost to celebrate, to commemorate, to rejoice with, with the church, with our brothers and sisters in the household of God, that the Spirit has been poured out upon us that we can cry out, Abba, Father, because it's the Spirit of Jesus that's at work within us, giving us access to God that we might call Him Father. And we say, Our Father, because our Lord said, My Father. And because he says, my father, and pours out his spirit upon us, we as his people, as the body of Christ, can pray the Our Father. Even in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke gives us the Lord's Prayer, he directly connects Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer with the explanation for the giving of the Holy Spirit. When Matthew gives us the Lord's Prayer, the, the word that's translated as daily is uh, give us this day our daily bread. The Greek word for daily there is epiousios, meaning above nature, above the essence, above the, the usia, the substance. Jesus is teaching us that the Lord's Prayer is about the reception of the Eucharist. One of the primary means of heaven coming to earth is the reception of the Eucharist, this Eucharistic presence, if you will, that's in the Gospel of Matthew. Luke highlights the presence of the Holy Spirit, this pneumatic power that, that God has not just sent an angel to be with us. That's very old covenant. The angels are with us, but he's highlighting something new in the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit is hypostatically, he is personally, powerfully present and abiding in every member of the body by virtue of baptism and the Eucharist the confirmation through the laying on of hands by the bishop, the hearing of the, the words of, of absolution in our confession, the, the solemnity of matrimony, all the other sacramental rites of the church. The Holy Spirit is the one working personally in us, through us and to us, to make those things not just rites or ceremonies, but real changes in the usia, in the essence, in the substance of who and what we are as members of the body of Jesus. And when we receive that daily bread, that above, that epiousios, the, the above the, the natural bread, that heavenly bread, that heavenly manna, we receive Christ in the Eucharist by the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit's personal work in us the Spirit of Truth who reminds us of what He has said once for all in the, in the faith that's been once for all delivered in, in the pages of Scripture. When He quickens our memories with His Word, you know, the Word of God we've hidden in our, in our, our hearts, that we might not sin against Him to be a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. The Holy Spirit is the one bringing these things back to mind so that we can live lives of obedience that please the Lord. There's great joy in this, peace in this. And um, I hope as you celebrate Pentecost this Sunday, you do so with that awareness that God hears you with more attention and is more attentive to your prayer and more desirous to hear you and your prayer than you are to even speak. So that when you go to pray, you pray that you're not seeking one who is far away, but you are finally tuning your attention to one who's already present. And then to receive him in the sacrament 
and to rejoice in his pneumatic presence. Because it's a dynamic gift of the new covenant that we, are, we all have. We all have access to. We've all been baptized by one spirit into one body, Paul says. So I encourage you, my friends, in this, this short episode this week to rejoice in the Lord, to be strengthened by him and filled up with glory and with joy. Well, I'm Daryl. Thanks for tuning in this week. And I hope to have the team back with you next week, rejoicing in the presence of God together. Bye-bye.